This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Americans owe $1.6 trillion in public student debt. President Biden, both in campaign promises and in more recent comments, is considering some student debt forgiveness, either by executive fiat or through a coordinated act of Congress. Though framed as a helping hand for those saddled with crushing debt and for whom such debt imposes stifling long-term burdens, any such forgiveness could be regarded as largely regressive, keeping largesse on those with the most education debt at the expense of those who have borrowed less, paid their debt, or not gone to college at all. Nevertheless, debate amongst the president's supporters seemed to focus only on the amount of forgiveness, while failing to distinguish those debtors most in need from those who can well afford to pay. And if such forgiveness implies that college may not equip students with the added skills to pay for their own education, should we reconsider the wisdom of encouraging all students to borrow for secondary education, regardless of value or lifetime return? My guest today is Mark Kantrowitz, one of the nation's leading experts in education financing, aid, scholarships, and grants. For the past three decades, Mr. Kantrowitz's writing has provided students with strategies for making informed choices about education and for borrowing wisely when doing so. Mark and I will discuss his research observation on the profile of those who carry student debt, and he will offer recommendations for more targeted debt forgiveness aimed at the most vulnerable, while also avoiding the cost and moral hazard of forgiving the debt of those most able to repay. When I return, I'll be joined by education financing expert, Mark Kantrowitz. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by education financing expert, Mark Kantrowitz. Welcome to Hubwonk, Mark. Thank you for having me. Okay, now before we dive into our topic of uh, student debt forgiveness, uh, let's establish for our audience, uh, for our listeners, your bona fides as, quote, the nation's leading expert on college student financial aid, scholarships, college savings plans, education tax benefits, and student loans. Uh, tell our listeners, how long have you been doing this, studying uh, these options, uh, making yourself an expert? Uh, you know, what, what, what brought you to this uh, level of being the nation's expert? Well, I've been doing this work for three decades, so I have a lot of experience, and I'm not content to uh, state what is existing policy. I, I like doing research to identify new insights uh, and new rules of thumb that can influence public policy. I've served as publisher of several leading websites about planning and paying for college. I've written more than 150 student aid policy papers and 14 books, uh, including five bestsellers. That's very impressive. Um, so you know, beyond what we're gonna talk about today, if our listeners are looking for an expert, uh, they're trying to figure out how to pay to pay for college in the future, uh, prospectively, uh, you would be the guy to talk to about how to uh, borrow wisely and efficiently. Now, my mission is to help students and their families make smarter, more informed decisions about paying for college, as well as repaying student loans. So we're going to not just talk about the future. In this case, we're, we're going to talk about loans already incurred. Um, so let's, let's jump into our topic. Uh, we're going to talk about the concept of a student debt forgiveness. Let's set the stage for our listeners interested in, um, in this topic. 
largely is brought on by uh, President Biden's recent murmurs that, quote, I'm considering dealing with some student debt reduction. Um, uh, this statement comes, of course, in the context of us uh, were in the aftermath of COVID-19 during that time. Uh, it seems reasonable that the uh, student debt, uh, there was a moratorium on paying back student debt, and that was extended a few times. And here we are um, uh, back to, I won't call it normal, but we're a, a, an unemployment rate that's remarkably low. Uh, so let's say uh, the, everybody who wants to work uh, is almost at work. Uh, so let's start with some numbers. How much total student debt now uh, that we're ready to pay it back, how much student debt is held in the United States? According to the Federal Reserve's G19 report, as of December 31st of 2021, there was a total of $1.75 trillion of student loan debt. Uh, more recent data is not available. Now, of this total, about 1.6 trillion is federal student loans and the rest is private student loans. And the federal student loans is owed by a little bit more than 43 million borrowers. Now, the payment pause and interest waiver, that student loan moratorium, uh, applied to about 1.46 trillion of the total. Okay, so this is money, this uh, trillion dollars is a lot. I think uh, it rhymes with billion and million, but uh, a trillion has 16 zeros, right? It's uh, $1,600 billion, it's a lot of money. Um, so you're an expert in the best ways to finance uh, education. Is it already the case that um, before I go out and uh, borrow money, um, are there ways that the government or universities currently work to ease the burden? In other words, um, is the government already doing its most to, uh, to uh, prevent a, a, an aspiring student from incurring more debt than they should? Are there subsidies both from governments and universities already? Right. So about six dozen colleges, uh, some of the most selective colleges, have very generous no loans financial aid policies. They do not include loans in the financial aid package, replacing them with grants. But that's only six dozen out of uh, more than 6,000 colleges. Um, all colleges that provide federal student loans are required to provide entrance and exit loan counseling to borrowers. Uh, I've argued that this isn't frequent enough that you have to provide counseling every time the student borrows and that it needs to be personalized to the student's circumstances. Uh, and some colleges also provide financial literacy training. The quality of the counseling and the financial literacy training varies from college to college. Some colleges have really good training, some colleges not as good, and some don't provide the financial literacy training at all. Now, every college since 2011 has been required to provide a net price calculator on their website. This is a calculator that students can use to generate a personalized estimate of their one-year net price. The net price is the difference between total college costs and gift aid uh, gift aid includes grants, scholarships, and other money that doesn't need to be repaid. It's like a discount on the college costs. And total college costs include not just room and tuition fees, but also room and board, book supplies and equipment, transportation, miscellaneous personal expenses. So the net price is the amount of money that the family or the student will have to pay from their savings, from contributions, from income, and from student loans. The student loan debt at graduation correlates very strongly with the net price. 
Now, students should consider choosing a less expensive college. They don't need to go to the most expensive college in their field. Besides the no loans colleges, which have a net very low net price because they give more of the aid as grants as opposed to loans, uh, an in-state public college is, for most students, is going to be the least expensive option. An in-state public college costs about a quarter to a third the cost of a private college. You can also save on college costs in other ways, such as by buying used textbooks or selling them back to the bookstore at the end of the semester, uh, minimizing the number of trips home from school. And in general, what you need to do is live like a student while you're in school, so you don't have to live like a student after you graduate. Oh, that's a great that's a great uh, takeaway. I, li I like that, uh, that that slogan. And of course, when we talk about some selective schools, I, I did a quick look up uh, Harvard. If your your family makes less than seventy five thousand, it's, it's free. I think your MIT, that's your uh, alma mater, I, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, also is seventy five thousand or less, or even up to one hundred forty thousand. It's it's next to you know close to zero to to attend. But for most schools, that's not the case. I'll just point out, I, I share your concern that uh, colleges, though they are uh, tasked with educating students on uh, making wise decisions, uh, there's a conflict of interest, right? Because if you're an expensive school make, giving counseling, you've got a, a, a disincentive to make it clear to the student how much they're going to owe in the future. Is that right? That's right. And the financial aid award letters uh, sometimes are as clear as mud, blurring the distinction between a grant and a loan. So the student is left with not really understanding how much they have to borrow to pay for their college. And sometimes they'll refer to a loan as an award and not really have any signals that this is money that needs to be repaid. So um, we do want, you know, so we're both advocates of uh, students approaching college with eyes wide open and saying, okay, I'm going to get the education, but I'm going to have to pay X to get it. Uh, so let's just uh, address some of the sort of um, narratives that uh, those who are interested in forgiving student loans, I think, uh, a lot of well-meaning people who, who may be uh, sympathetic to the, these types of policies. Imagine that uh, students, um, student debt really is a byproduct of, of, of uh, 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 a student coming from a family with fewer resources and must borrow to, uh, to pay for school. You've answered, um, I think, already that there are choices. They can go to less expensive schools, maybe uh, state colleges, that sort of thing. But is there a correlation in your analysis between how much debt is held by students in general and let's say the family income uh, uh, there? In other words, are, are, the, are, are poor kids the ones who are taking on the debt? Well, and first of all, let's establish that college means debt. Uh, of students receiving a bachelor's degree, more than 70% graduate with student loan debt. If we limit it to students who applied for financial aid, filing the FAFSA, then seven eighths of them uh, graduate with student loan debt. Uh, one of the most effective ways of eliminating the need for student loan debt is to pick wealthy parents. Of course, for the <laughs> obvious that you can't do that. But uh, when I've looked at Pell Grant recipients versus non-recipients, the Pell Grant recipients, and these are generally very low-income students, it's a good proxy for low-income status, they are much more likely to borrow for college than middle and high-income students, and they graduate with more debt. So we expect are least capable of paying students who are least capable of paying for college to borrow the most um and that's a sign that we're not giving adequate grants to these students and the uh pell grant uh, historically has gone up by only about a hundred dollars a year even as college costs go up by thousands of dollars a year uh 
Now, among students who graduated with a bachelor's degree in 2016, 84% of Pell Grant recipients graduated with student loan debt. Uh, that compares with 61% of other students. And they graduated with a few thousand dollars more student loan debt. Okay, so let's let's break it down more granularly. Um, again, one point six trillion divided by the number of students. Is this sort of are, are students? Is there sort of a uniform uh, uh, profile of the debt, or are a few students uh, owe a thousand dollars and others owe hundreds of thousands of dollars? And we we really haven't gotten down into the nitty gritty of we're all t only talking about undergraduate. Uh, my research, arguably uh, nothing like yours, seems to indicate that uh, the, the massive debt is incurred by those who choose to go to graduate school. It might be a professional school like um, law school or medical school. Breakdown, you know, is, is everybody um, uh, about the same debt or we got huge disparities? Well, we often hear news stories about a student who graduated with a bachelor's degree and $100,000 or more in student loan debt. Mind you, you can't do that just with federal student loans. You need private student loans to do that. The reality is that 90% of bachelor degree recipients graduate with less than $50,000 in student loan debt. And among those who graduate with six-figure debt, most of them are graduate students with degrees in medicine or law. Uh, it really is uh, an exception to the rule when a student graduates with six-figure debt for an undergraduate degree. I mean, that's usually a sign that something is not being done right, that they're at too expensive a college, or that nobody try to raise their awareness that they're taking on too much debt. Because generally speaking, if your total student loan debt at graduation is less than your annual starting salary, you should be able to afford to repay your student loans in 10 years or less. It's when your debt exceeds your annual income that you'll struggle to make those loan payments and you'll need an alternate repayment plan like extended repayment or income-driven repayment to yield a more affordable monthly loan payment. These repayment plans reduce your monthly payment by increasing the repayment term to 20, 25, or even 30 years, which means you're gonna be paying a lot more interest over the life of the loan, and you'll still be repaying your own student loans when your children go to college. So it's like graduating with a mortgage. That's, that sounds a little bit daunting. Is there a correlation? Now we said there's students um, who uh, incur the six-figure debt might be in professional schools, graduate schools, uh, medicine, law. Those are, I think, notoriously well-paying industries. Have you broken down uh, where the debt lies amongst low income, medium income, and high income. I love your uh, sort of back of the envelope rule of thumb, which is you ought not to incur more debt than your expected annual salary upon graduation. Great, great um, uh, nugget there. But how, uh, given the profile of who owes money now, are they low income people, medium income, or even high, high income earners? Um, there's a superposition of uh, two curves. One is people uh, who uh, took on uh, a more lucrative degree, like a graduate degree, and therefore have higher debt, but also higher income. And uh, people who didn't graduate at all, they have less debt because they weren't in college for as long, but they don't have the degree that can help them repay that debt. So they're much more likely to struggle. 
that's why you often hear statistics about uh, the average debt of people who default on their student loans being under $10,000. It's actually a little bit more than that. Uh, and that's because a, the likelihood of default increases as the debt to earnings ratio increases. The, the greater debt as a share of income, the more likely you are to default. But at the same time, if you drop out of college, uh, there's a second curve there. And when you join the two curves, it uh, yields results that are often misinterpreted as saying, oh, this is only a low income uh, problem or a low debt amount problem. It's really, it's if you have more debt compared to your income, your ability to pay that debt is impaired. And if you drop out of college, you're much more likely to default on your student loans than someone who graduates. So I think we're having a disconnect between um, the cost of college and the benefit of college. Uh, it seems odd that um, uh, one would uh, incur debt for something that doesn't help them pay that debt or doesn't better help them pay for debt. Let's um, let's start to talk about some of the remedies, uh, some of the uh, numbers banded around uh, now uh, for forgiveness. Again, I'm jumping ahead to forgiveness. Um, you know, I, we don't want blunt instruments such as uh, you know across the board. Uh, forgiveness, uh, in, in my view, uh, as you mentioned, there's a huge uh, stratification of debt and potential uh, uh, ability to pay that debt. There's wealthy people who owe, owe a lot and poor people owe a little. Uh, and ironically, or not ironically, but uh, the, the, the lower income people with smaller debt are at most risk. If we start forgiving all debt across the board, uh, whatever that number is, it's inevitably going to wind up forgiving debt for people who have uh, the most ability to pay back that debt. Isn't that just obviously true? Yeah, and that's one of the things that some people object to uh, in a broad student loan forgiveness program, which is why would you forgive the student loans of someone who is capable of repaying their student loans? Uh, they argue that student loan forgiveness should be targeted at the borrowers who have financial need and not uh, as wealthier borrowers uh, who don't really think they want loan forgiveness, but they don't need loan forgiveness. Yes, indeed. And again, one of, one of my uh, little mantras is the fact that the government doesn't have its own money. So uh, that money that's going to pay off uh, wealthy uh, college graduates, perhaps doctors and lawyers, is coming from people who didn't go to college and perhaps uh, pay their taxes. And that money is getting uh, taken from someone who didn't go to college and given to someone who did. Presumably, if if college is worth anything, that seems uh, uh, a difficult uh, a program to accept. Um, now, we do already have uh, programs, government programs from the, I guess, the Department of Education that does serve to forgive loans even before uh, any talk of any future program. Right now, there are several um, uh, national programs that allow some uh, uh, loan debt to be forgiven. Can you share with us what are some of those uh, uh, programs? Well, they tend to fall into two groups. One is for people uh, who fulfill some sort of public policy objectives, such as getting people to teach in a national need area or other public service. So you have teacher loan forgiveness, uh, you have public service loan forgiveness. The other group uh, is uh, discharges for people who are unable to repay the debt uh, or uh, can repudiate the debt in some manner. So if you die and your ability to repay the debt uh, is impaired, uh, and so there's a death discharge. 
If you're totally and permanently disabled, there's a disability discharge. Uh, if you're the victim of identity theft and didn't actually borrow the loans, there's an identity theft discharge. Um, and yeah, in looking at these uh, programs, and I, I want to, I want you to tell me I've read it wrong. Uh, I think recently the education department recently announced it was forgiving. $6.2 billion in student debt for those working in the public sector. Now, I know public sector's uh, jobs are not uh, lucrative necessarily, but they are fairly paid, I assume, if people show up for them. Uh, this this uh, program seems to be a bit self-serving, that the government would forgive government loans for people who work for the government. Uh, am I getting that wrong, or is this shamelessly self-serving? Well, members of Congress aren't eligible for public service loan forgiveness. Uh, and the program is tied to uh, a specific set of repayment plans called the income-driven repayment plans, uh, where your monthly loan payment is based on a percentage of your discretionary income as opposed to the amount you owe. If you're a higher-income individual, you will pay more under those plans than someone who's a low-income individual. Uh, and generally speaking, uh, in order to qualify for some loan forgiveness, your total student loan debt has to exceed your annual income. So this isn't providing loan forgiveness to high paid uh, DMV workers. Uh, it is going to people who are taking low paying jobs despite their high amount of debt um, in order to give back to society. So uh, an example might be public interest law, uh, like a public defender. They don't get paid very well. I mean, $40,000 is kind of typical, yet they may have hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loan debt for a law degree. Uh, if there weren't for the income-driven repayment plans and the possibility of public service loan forgiveness so that you're not uh, basically an indentured servant, uh, not just a public servant, uh, they wouldn't go into these fields. The, the debt would be so big that it would provide a severe disincentive to pursuing a public service career. So public service loan forgiveness uh, removes the debt as a disincentive. Another example is social workers. Uh, for a master's of social work, I mean, your debt might be seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000. Those jobs pay $30,000, $35,000. Uh, it's uh, there's a mismatch between how we compensate people for these public and national need areas and uh, how much debt they have to take on uh, to get a degree in that field. So effectively, the government needs to uh, effectively subsidize those professions so as to incentivize people to that who would otherwise not choose them to choose them. So right. that and it's, it's also um, the. It's a lot less expensive for the government to provide public service loan forgiveness than to pay these people more. And if they were to pay them what they could get in the private sector, um, they wouldn't need public service loan forgiveness. Now, public service loan forgiveness, it's based on the, how much debt you have. And once that debt's forgiven, there's no more payout. Whereas if you were to pay higher salaries, then that would be higher income uh, over the life, the work life of that individual. So in a way, public service loan forgiveness saves the government money. I'm curious. I just want to divert for a second. If the government forgives my loan, let's say I owe $100,000, and the, the largesse forgives that loan, 
I know from my uh, um, uh, independent business world that if my uh, firm uh, gives me a loan that, that they say you no longer need to pay back, uh, that's considered a gift and it's considered taxable. Um, would uh, someone who's been forgiven a hundred thousand dollar loan uh, be then sent a whopping tax bill for the gift that's been effectively given? Right, so it used to be the case. Now IRS considers that if someone cancels your debt, it's as though they gave you the money to pay off the debt, and that money, that amount that's forgiven, is income to you. Now, previously, public service loan forgiveness was tax-free because of a special provision in the Internal Revenue Code, uh, but income, the 20 or 25-year forgiveness at the end of an income-driven repayment plan was taxable. Um, in many cases, these borrowers were insolvent and they could qualify for forgiveness of the tax debt. But uh, the American Rescue Plan Act uh, added a special provision that all student loan cancellation, whether forgiveness or discharge, uh, is tax-free through December 31st of 2025. And President Biden has called in his budget for that to be made permanent. Uh, and it seems likely that it'll either be extended or made permanent. I know. Uh, it applies not just to public service loan forgiveness and income-driven repayment, but also to the death and disability discharges. Um, and they, they were charging the uh, it, it, the tax liability against the estate of the decedent. Um, that just doesn't seem right. So you've done a lot of research on ways to more um, uh, to target um, forgiveness. Uh, as opposed to just saying across the board, everybody, uh, the first $10,000 of your debt is is forgiven regardless of your uh, income or your uh, prospects for paying it back. Um, what are some of the more uh, targeted or um, uh, criteria for debt forgiveness? Uh, how do we target the people we really want to target? That is low-income people who really just can't get out from beyond their debt. How, how would you design a, a forgiveness plan uh, that's more effective than a across the board amount. So you could do means testing where you would uh, forgive the student loans for someone who uh, has an income below a particular threshold, maybe $50,000, $75,000. And that would reduce the cost. It would also reduce the number of borrowers who qualify. But the problem with means testing is that it would require some kind of an application process. And that means it can't be done automatically. And the recent trend, I mean, what the Biden administration has done a lot of is making loan forgiveness, the existing loan forgiveness programs, automatic, like doing a data match between the U.S. Department of Education's records and the VA or the Social Security Administration in order to implement the disability discharges or special treatment for the debt of uh, members of the U.S. Armed Forces where the interest rate is capped at 6%, and, and, and similar uh, provisions. Also with public service loan forgiveness, members of the US Armed Forces are eligible, but I'm just matching up that data uh, to facilitate that is, is beneficial. So um, I tend to like having a specific dollar amount of loan forgiveness because it's much easier to implement, but uh, rather than provide the forgiveness to everybody, um, $10,000 of loan forgiveness to every borrower would cost $375 billion and, for, and completely erase the student loans 
of a third of borrowers um, provide that loan forgiveness only to people who owe $10,000 or less. That reduces the cost to $75 billion, but still completely erases the debt of a third of borrowers. And it tends to be better targeted at borrowers uh, who are lower income. Uh, and you still, it's not perfect because you still have wealthier borrowers who just happen to have paid down their debt to under $10,000, but it is much more effective than saying everybody gets a freebie. I see. I want to uh, change the focus of our lens a little bit. And I think we touched on it when we were talking about, you know, sort of prospectively, when I'm thinking about taking on debt and going into college and choosing which college and frankly, which major, what do I do for a living? Uh, and comparing what my debt will be uh, relative to my my income, aren't we, in a sense, uh, if we are effectively forgiving debt for people who are of lower income, effectively subsidizing those fields that um, generate less income, aren't we creating um, incentives or, or distorting incentives so that uh, students uh, choose, uh, perhaps instead of higher paying, let's say, STEM majors, they become um, you know, theater majors or uh, poetry majors, uh, don't we run the risk of saying, okay, cho choose your path, uh, cost be damned, and the less you make, the more we're likely to subsidize afterward. This seems to me to perhaps be steering people in directions that, uh, you know, aren't good for their long-term well-being. Well, this is a problem that's often referred to as moral hazard, where if you know that your student loans are going to be forgiven, then you increase the amount you borrow. Uh, however, if they limit the amount of forgiveness to say $10,000, that means that the borrowers will still have to repay the rest of their student loan debt. That tends to minimize the risk of moral hazard. Um, and it, any kind of a loan forgiveness program will have those potential problems. Uh, I tend to favor uh, solutions which reduce the need for debt by providing more grants, targeted grants up front, uh, such as doubling or tripling the Pell Grant that not only increases who goes to college and who graduates from college, but it also reduces the amount of debt at graduation. Whereas a loan forgiveness program I mean, doesn't increase college access or success. But, but in, yeah, okay, let, let's pull the lens further back. Uh, Pell Grants are money coming from the government, and, and you know the deep dark secret is the government doesn't have its own money. So it's coming from you're, you're you're essentially giving money whether in the front end or forgiving in the back end. You're taking money from people who didn't go to college, and giving it to people who do. Which in a sense, again, we accept that uh, um, where you get ta taxes give you less of something and subsidies give you more of something. Aren't we in a sense uh, calling education in general just a a common good uh, worthy of, of taxing people who don't do it and giving it to people who do. What what public benefit is it to uh, continuously and perhaps, uh, you know, in the broadest strokes possible, send everybody to college? Uh, aren't we sort of uh, missing the point here? Uh, if if, if the, ultimately the college doesn't generate the revenue necessary to pay back college, isn't the value proposition, uh, you know, something we should uh, consider? Well, College is not just a private good benefiting the student, it's also a public good. A college graduate with a bachelor's degree pays more than twice the federal income tax of someone with just a high school diploma. So people tend to personalize this issue, asking why their taxes should be used to pay off someone else's student loan debt, 
Um, but the reality is that it's the college graduates who mostly are uh, going to be paying back uh, the cost of this through their income taxes, if their income taxes are actually increased to, to cover the cost uh, and not pass off to some future generation decades from now. Uh, the um, One could take that kind of argument that why should my taxes be used for uh, something that I disagree with and to other areas. Like, why should you pay for the military if you're a pacifist? Or why should you pay for school taxes if you don't have children? Uh, should you pay for the police if you don't commit crimes? Uh, should you pay higher health insurance premiums and higher life insurance premiums if you're healthy? Um, why should you have to pay taxes at all if you don't like your state's politicians, if you didn't vote for the guy? or maybe the politicians in another state where you clearly didn't. Uh, should you have to pay for snow removal if you don't own a car? Um, or the example I gave earlier is nobody, the, the public t tends to dislike the DMV. Well, why should you have to pay the salaries of people who work for the DMV if you don't like the DMV? Um, why should you have to pay taxes on things that you buy for your own use? And all of those are similar questions. Um, and, and all of those, I, I, I would be happy to answer any one of those questions. They, they're all very, very good questions and all easily answered and, and dispensed with. I, I don't want to cloud our, our topic with, with sort of hypotheticals. What I will say, though, if you characterize, um, if you say merely that those who go to college make more than those who don't, and there, ergo they pay more in taxes and keep us all uh, happy, you, you, I think that's a bit of a disingenuous uh, statement, which is to say that's not a random sample. We don't take the same, same 10 guys and send 10 to college and 10 not to college and compare the outcome. Uh, it, you know, it, it, the people who go to college are self-selected and, and, and arguably uh, have profound advantages over those who don't. Uh, but I'd say if I take someone you know, at the margin who uh, has a choice whether they go to trade school or uh, invest in an F-150 and become a a plumber instead of going and uh, becoming a history major, uh, it, it could be argued that they would make far more uh, in the trades than they would uh, as a professional historian or, or, or something else. And, uh, you know, how does that benefit me uh, to send him to school? And how, arguably, and, you know, we can have ethical conversation all day long, but if indeed we sent a um, uh, someone who would otherwise be a successful plumber to being an unsuccessful uh, an unsatisfied historian, uh, we've hurt him too, not just society. So what would you say to the people who have those concerns? Well, an, an electrician or an HVAC tech uh, with a certificate or an associate's degree can earn as much as uh, bachelor's degrees in some fields. Um, and, and the argument that why should you subsidize one and not the other, like, why should you pay for an electrician who is uh, based in two states over? And so you're not going to benefit from that electrician personally. Um, I, I think that we all benefit from having a more educated populace. And, and I'd also like to point out that you really don't have a student loan problem so much as a college completion problem. The default rate for people who get a bachelor's degree, who graduate, even if it's in a field like underwater basket weaving, um, they are much, much less likely to default than someone who drops out. Um, overall, among all undergraduate students, 
Students who drop out are four times more likely to default than students who graduate. But among bachelor degree programs, they're 95 times more likely to default if they drop out than if they graduate. So the, the, the problem is that we're not getting students to the finish line. And that includes people who are pursuing uh, enrolled at lower cost institutions uh, like one year and two year programs. Uh, they're actually more likely to default than people who go to a four-year program. So, um, you know, I, I appreciate that. If anything, I, I think perhaps it makes my point more strong in that if we are, in a sense, subsidizing college and encourage people to go to college who might not otherwise choose college by virtue of the return on their investment, but they embark on college, incur debt, and then, and then leave college uh, and ultimately default, uh, are we doing them a favor by subsidizing them with, you know, say triple your Pell Grant plan, they still default, they still leave, um, uh, they still have debt. Um, how, how have we, um, how do we solve the um, dropout problem by giving people more reasons to go to college? Well, doubling the Pell Grant would pay for itself in terms of increased federal income tax revenue based on the number who would ultimately graduate in about a decade. Most people work 40, 45 years. So that means we're gonna get at least 30 years of pure profit to the federal government from increased federal income tax revenue. It's the equivalent of a 14% annualized return on investment. Now, if I were to come to you and say, I've got this sure-fired way to generate a 14% return on investment for decades, you'd be asking me, is your name Bernie Madoff? Um, because- Well, I, the I guess, there's, a, there's a big, 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 big flaw in that, that line of reasoning, which is to say, the people who go to college and the people who don't go to college are the same people. They're very, very different people. So if I push a button and send everybody to college and assume that the half that have not gone to college will now join the ranks of those who do and earn the same amount, you've got a point. But that seems like a, a profound a leap of, of faith. Uh, I think there's a difference fundamentally between people who go to college and frankly, people who I'm not who saying you send everyone to college. I'm saying people who are college capable, uh, capable of benefiting from college, um, provide them with the resources they need to afford a college education. Right now, you have college-capable, low-income students who don't go to college because of the chilling effect of student loan debt. If you had to borrow more than your parents earn in a year to pay for your college education, you'd think twice about going to college, even if you've got the academic chops to be able to benefit from a college education. And wealthy students who are least college-capable enroll in college at six times the rate of highly qualified low-income students. So we are not investing in our best resource, which is our people, uh, at an adequate level. We need to do more to ensure that college-capable low-income students are able to enroll in college and graduate from college if that's what they want to do. I'm not saying that someone who flunked out of uh, high school and should go to college I mean, maybe they need to go back to high school and, and get their education, or maybe that's education is not the right uh, pursuit for them. But there are plenty of people who could benefit from college 
but don't because it costs too much. But if, again, I don't want to keep beating this to death, but if we say we're, when we invest in college, we're investing with the expectation that it will improve our future earnings to the degree that we'll be able to comfortably pay our, our college back, right? So if it provided no value, it would be no, there would be no value in going to college. Uh, you might challenge that statement, but let, let's just uh, uh, stipulate that it ought to deliver some return to the person who receives the education. And I think you would agree with that. But what you're saying now is that uh, college is inherently good. We should send everyone or who wants to go or who is, as you say, college capable. But somehow on the other end, that college degree does not empower them to pay back the loan that they incurred. In other words, it isn't worth what they paid for. Isn't that really a, a, a fundamental economic question? It's not it's something valuable, but is it worth enough value to uh, you know, trade money for it? Well, and first of all, if they graduate, generally speaking, they're able to repay their student loans, I mean, except for the rare case where someone goes completely overboard with borrowing. You need to peg the aggregate loan limits to the uh, expected annual income of uh, the degree level and the academic major. Uh, the problem is people who drop out, as I said before, have the debt but not the degree that can help them repay the debt. So we, this isn't um, a uh, issue of um, people are graduating from college and don't have the income because they picked uh, a low paying career and oftentimes those low-paying careers give back to society in other ways. The point is that the federal government is profiting off of college-educated people. They pay more federal income tax, a greater share of federal income tax, than people who don't have a college degree. So is the federal government paying its fair share of college costs? Are state governments paying their fair share of college costs, given that they're profiting from increased income tax revenue? And I think the answer is no, that they, and maybe in the 1970s, they were paying their fair share, but over the decades, the financial aid provided by government has shifted from grants to loans. Uh, grant, every dollar of a grant costs the government a dollar. Every dollar of a loan yields a small profit to the federal government. It's a lot easier to increase aid in the form of loans than it is in the form of grants. Uh, and this has shifted the burden of paying for college increasingly from uh, the government to the families. This is despite family income being essentially flat for the last two decades. So families are increasingly struggling to pay for college. Now, the only form of financial aid with any degree of elasticity is loans. Because their their income is, hasn't changed, so they either have to send their child to a lower cost college, and that's not just from private colleges to public colleges. It's from four year colleges to two year colleges, two year to one year, and one year to no post secondary education, um, or they have to borrow more, and that's why we see very steady increases in the average debt at graduation and the total student loan debt outstanding. And that's because the government is not carrying its fair share of the costs. Hmm. I'm not sure I uh, follow that logic, but um, it seems to me that you you, you want to assert that uh, the government needs uh, college education more than the individual student needed. No, it's a uh, partnership. It's a partnership. Part of it gets paid back by the student. Part of it gets paid back by the government. 
And the government still comes out ahead financially when you look at the impact on federal income tax revenue from getting these students to the finish line. But so does the student. Uh, you know, this is, yes, they both benefit. But, you know, again, we don't want to do an economics degree here, but, uh, you know, public good is not, it's good for the public. It's non-rivalous, uh, non-excludable. That sounds like a private good, not a public good. If I go to college and get a PhD, uh, it benefits me. Sure, I'll pay more in taxes in my life, but I should be willing to pay for what I what I consumed or what I what I gave to myself. I mean, why not? Why privilege education? Why not give uh, um, uh, subsidies for people to become uh, again, uh, you know, uh, electricians? Why why privilege you know academics? Uh, I'm not uh, saying that they shouldn't pay anything for their degree. I'm just saying that the federal government doesn't pay uh, its share based on its the, its share of the benefit. I mean, the, the federal government needs to do more. The, the people who need forgiveness are the people who, through often through no fault of their own, um, have uh, are unable to repay the student loan debt. Maybe they got that PhD trained to be a rocket scientist, and the day after graduation, they're in a car accident, and they're paraplegic, and they can no longer do the job for which they're trained. That's why we have a disability discharge. Uh, just uh, saying, oh, I mean, people should have to pay the entire cost of their college education, even though the government is also financially benefiting, that doesn't really make sense. The government benefits, the borrower benefits, the student benefits, both should be contributing to the cost of that education. And from the government's point of view, if it were to invest a little more in making college more affordable, it would increase the number of people with college degrees and therefore increase its net federal income tax revenue after subtracting the cost of the uh, getting the students to graduate. And that could benefit the rest of society in two ways. Either the government has more money, and if you think the government spends its money wisely, it would have more money to spend on programs that benefit society. Or it could reduce the taxes that everybody pays because it's getting more revenue. Either way, there's a benefit to the rest of society, not just the individual who got that college degree. All right. We're, I think we're going to have to disagree here because I think uh, that, that logic taken to its logical conclusion is, you know, I, I pay property tax for my house. So the, the government should subsidize my my home purchase. I, you know, I mean, I, I arguably it does for for mortgages. And I, I might take issue with that, but um, we're going to have to disagree. But I appreciate you've given this a lot of thought. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think you've given our listeners something to think about. And uh, I enjoy a good, uh, a good, lively uh, conversation like this. So, Mark, I want, of course, you to be able to plug your services. Uh, those people who are who are persuaded by your arguments uh, over our conversation would like to find you and perhaps ask for your help and best ways to uh, to pay for school. Uh, how can our listeners find you? Okay. Uh, I don't do paid consultations with families. I mean, sometimes people find me and send me a question and sometimes I'll answer that. I get far more questions than I have time available to answer. Um, I uh, have a website where I have my student aid policy papers. That's studentaidpolicy.com. Uh, I write for the College Investor website. Uh, I also write for Forbes.com. And I'll soon be starting up a Q&A column that will be published by the Wall Street Journal.
Yes, I went on your uh, website. You have, uh, I don't know, hundreds of articles that are all very carefully uh, reasoned and, and supported by data. So uh, I, I do recommend your uh, your website to our listeners. So, Mark, thank you very much for uh, sharing your uh, analysis with us. I, I enjoyed our conversation today. You're welcome. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show and Pioneer Institute. It will be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.